0: The scripture reading we had tonight reflects what we hope to do in this evening's question and answer sessions. We believe that all scripture is God breathed. This is the book God wants us to have. And as we have questions of a biblical or theological nature, we want to turn to the Bible and see what it has to say about those questions. Tonight we have eight questions. And so I'll be talking faster than I normally talk. And so for some of you, I guess all hope is lost. But. We'll do the best we can, and I meant to, the guy that does the slides, give him scripture references that go along with these, and I forgot to do that. So on the slides, it'll just be the questions, but if you miss a verse or if there's something I say tonight that causes a further question in your mind, you can talk with me after. We can submit it next month, but what Neil and I want these question and answer sessions to be is a different way of studying and getting into the, way, the Bible together and seeing what the Bible has to say, and hopefully it'll help us to be better Bible students. These are the answers that I've prepared as I've studied them. And hopefully, they'll help us all as we try to be the people God wants us to be. All right, let's begin. Number one, what year was Jesus born? This is an interesting question, and it's a good question. Now, the Bible doesn't give us any dates. The Bible doesn't come out and say on this day and in this month. But there are some time markers that will help us. And so in Matthew chapter 2, for example, in verse 1, it says that Jesus was born in and around the time when Herod was reigning as king. The Herod that's under discussion in Matthew chapter 2 is Herod the Great. Josephus is a Jewish historian and we have some of his writings preserved and Josephus tells us several interesting things about Herod, about when he lived and about when he died. He says Herod became sick and ill with a sort of fever type deal all over him. Different doctors tried to do different things to preserve his life. He even got into a warm bath to try to preserve his life. But eventually he died. Josephus surmises that that was in payback for the things that he had done. You remember in Matthew 2:16 and 17. In an effort to try to kill Jesus, he had all of the male children, two years old and under, put to death. The death of Herod, so far as we can tell from chronology, was about 4 B.C. And so since Jesus was already born, Jesus had to have been born at least in 4 B.C. or sometime in that range. Most commentators and historians place the birth of Jesus in the range of 4 B.C. to 7 B.C. But that brings questions. If BC stands for before Christ, how could Jesus be born in 4 BC? BC stands for before Christ. AD is a Latin phrase which is Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. And that's the time in which we would expect Jesus to be born and all of the events after. So this year is supposedly 2022. How could Jesus be born in BC? People wonder about it. And the answer is, That there was a Roman monk who was known for translating works from Greek to Latin. His name was Dionysus, a.k.a. Dennis the Little. That's what his name stood for. He was charged by a pope. He was also a mathematician. He was charged by a pope with taking the Julius and the Gregorian calendars and putting them into shape, putting them into form. And he came up with B.C. and A.D. as time markers. The only problem is when he was dating the birth of Christ, he wanted that to be the center for his dating. He dated the birth of Christ and he was off by four years. And so there that's a mathematician for you. But because of his error, Jesus, instead of being born on the A.D. side of things, so far as our calendars are concerned, he's placed in the B.C. era. And that just goes back to a mistake made by a mathematician. Now, this is good for us, because in the end, what it says to you and me is this. Jesus was a real person who lived in a real historical time. In Palestine in the days of Herod, the king, and we can verify that and check that through sources that aren't even biblical and they can testify to the fact that a man named Jesus of Nazareth really did live. Now, if we want to know whether or not he's Christ, we'll have to go to the New Testament records and the documents that tell us those things and put them to the test. But we can situate Jesus in history. We serve a real Jesus who lived in the days of King Herod, the great somewhere between seven to four B.C. Here's question number two. What are the new heavens and the new earth? And this question went on to say, when Jesus comes back, will we live in a heaven on earth or will we live in a heaven with God? This question has become more popular in churches of Christ in recent years. And go ahead and turn your Bible to Isaiah 65. This phrase, new heaven or new heavens and new earth, it appears four times in the Bible. There are two references in the Old Testament and then there are two references in the New Testament. And what we need to do. Is go to those passages, see them in their context and then derive the proper meaning from those and place ourselves where the Bible does. So the first time this appears is Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65 in verse 17. God says, behold, I make a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered anymore or come to mind. In Isaiah 65, these are in the days when Israel came back from Babylonian captivity. And God says, I'm doing something new. He calls it in Isaiah 65, 17, a new heavens and a new earth. It's not a new place in Isaiah 65. It's a new arrangement. That is, Israel has come back. Their enemies are vanquished. They're no longer in the Babylonian captivity or Persian rule. And they've come into a new situation. The last verse in Isaiah 65 and verse 25 speaks about a wolf lying down with the lamb and all of these things that communicate this idea of messianic peace. Isaiah 65, is very reminiscent of Isaiah 11:6 and 7, when the son of Jesse will spring forth and bring forth peace. Isaiah 65, 17, those new heavens and new earth aren't a physical location. They're metaphorical reference to the times in which we live in the age of Jesus Christ. Now, the second time the, the phrase appears in the Old Testament is Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66 and verse 22. And the statement is pretty much the same as it is in the chapter before. it. He says, as the new heavens and new earth, which I create will remain before me. So will your name and your seed forever. And it's the same idea. Isaiah is saying in the new covenant age of Jesus Christ in the days of the Messiah, There's going to be peace like you can't imagine. There are going to be all of these blessings and all of these benefits to those who occupy that time frame. In the Old Testament, when we see the phrase a new heaven and a new earth, it's not about a change in the cosmos. It's not about a physical change. It's about a change of status and situation for the people of God. It's a figure of speech. It appears twice in the New Testament, though, once in Second Peter, chapter three, and then another time in Revelation 21. And so let's do the one in Revelation 21 first. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Revelation 21. In Revelation 21 and verse one, we see this same phrase. This time heaven is in the singular, but John writes and behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. That's what John says in Revelation 1. Now, it's typical for us. I know we're getting to the end of the Bible, getting to the end of the New Testament, and we just assume That what John's about to describe is heaven, but that's not what John says. That's not what he says at all. In fact, after this, John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth, which I take in this passage to be the similar idea of Isaiah. There's the Romans have been destroyed. God's enemies have been put out that have ruined the church or at least tried to. And John says there's a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verse two and verse three of Revelation 21, he says he saw the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. That would be the church that belongs to God. And then in verse nine and verse 10, he calls her a bride. I know we think the streets of gold and all of these jewels, it has to be heaven. But I would argue John is actually describing the glorified church post persecution. He calls her the bride. He uses this temple and tabernacle language from the Old Testament. And what John is describing is this new arrangement for the people of God post persecution. Now, I believe there are some things in Revelation 21. That definitely apply to heaven. No more tears, no more crying. Revelation 21 four and following. But in this passage, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and something came down from heaven and it was a bride, the bride of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21, 9 and 10, he shows the angel shows him and she says, this is the bride. And so in Revelation 21, I take it the same way I take Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, just in a new frame of mind. It's a new arrangement of peace. After God's enemies have been routed and put to destruction. Now here's the last one in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, this is the one that I believe is talking about the end times and where individuals are going to reside. 2 Peter 3, you remember in verse 4, here we have mockers and scoffers coming and saying, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning of creation. And then Peter begins to describe these events. That the day of the Lord will come, Second Peter 3 and verse 10, and he's going to burn up or destroy the world. In Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 and verse 11 and in verse 12, Peter uses terminology like fire and dissolve and will be burned up. And he says those things about the earth. He says the earth will be burned up. The heavens will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works there will be exposed and burned up. All these things will be dissolved. What type of people should you be? And then in verse 13, there's our phrase again. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so what is Peter talking about when he uses the phrase a new heavens and new earth? Peter says the first heaven and the first earth, this one in which we currently live and occupy, is going to be burned up. This earth won't be anymore. It's going to be on fire. It'll be dissolved. So there's going to be a new dwelling place for the people of God, which I take to be heaven itself, because the current earth on which we live, the current place that we occupy, according to Peter, will be no more. It'll be burned up. And so what Isaiah promised, this new arrangement, what John mentioned in Revelation, Peter crystallizes as he says, when this earth is finally destroyed, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, there are other passages that are often introduced into this discussion. First Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. Think about that passage where Paul says we'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds or Hebrews six nineteen through 20, which says Jesus is our forerunner who's run before us into heaven itself. And those are passages which I take to describe the fact that Christians will ascend to be with the Lord in heaven. But then there are other passages on the other side of this where individuals who believe that God's going to destroy this earth and remake it. And Christians will live on a renovated earth. They will point to passages like Romans 8:19 through 23 or Matthew 19:28 and say those passages describe God. Yes, destroying this earth, but ultimately remaking it so that people can live on this earth and dwell with God. The passage in Matthew 19, 28, I believe Jesus is saying in the regeneration of the son of man, he's not talking about the remaking of the earth. He, again, is referencing the new covenant age when the apostles would have an exalted status as leaders in the church. And the passage in Romans eight, which speaks of the creation longing and groaning to be delivered. I don't think he's saying the creation wants to be rescued and saved, but he's personifying creation to say just as badly as you want to be redeemed and go to heaven. It's as if creation wants the very same thing. In the end, I believe the new heavens and the new are talking about our final resting place is heaven itself, where we'll be with God when this earth is burned up and it is no more. First Thessalonians 417 says we will always be with the Lord. And whatever we think about this in the end, that's what really matters. I know faithful Christians who are on both sides of this. I have friends that preach and they believe that the passages sometimes describe a renovated earth. But I believe the opposite side of this. Here's what I want us to appreciate. None of us have ever been. And so we're taking some seemingly difficult passages and doing the very best we can in the end, wherever it is. That's where I want to be. And I hope that's where we all want to be. I imagine when Jesus came the first time Jews had their passages and they thought, no, the Messiah is going to be like this. No, he's actually going to be like this. He'll have these characteristics. No, he'll have these. And when he came. He was all of those things and far more than they could have ever imagined. And I believe the same thing about heaven. We think, oh, it's going to be like this. No, surely it's going to be like this. It'll have these characteristics. No, it'll have these. What we can be sure of is when we get there, it'll be far more glorious and grand than we could have ever imagined. We do the best we can with the information we've been, we've been given. But we should approach topics like this. Things about end times with the humility with which God would be pleased with and say, wherever Christ is, I want to be there. All right. Here's number three. Explain the resurrections that took place in Matthew 27:51 through54. This is unique. Matthew's the only one that tells us about this. He's the only one that includes this as Jesus is crucified, and as Jesus is dying on the cross. He says this happened after Jesus gave up his spirit. That's Matthew 27 and verse 50. And then several miraculous events happen. Now, remember in the Gospel of Matthew, what God is trying to do through this gospel account and through Matthew's pen is to show the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God. And so in verse 51, the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. No man could have done that. It had to be God. There's an earthquake and then the rocks are split open. And then verse 52 says that graves are open. And after Jesus' resurrection, that's important. In verse 53, these individuals that were raised from the dead, they went throughout the city into the holy city and they talked to other people. I know that's confusing. That's challenging. But that's what we have. And so what's going on in this account that Matthew describes these individuals who have been raised from the dead? Well, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he raised several people from the dead. Jairus's daughter in Mark chapter five. Lazarus in John chapter 11, the widow's son at Nain in Luke 7, 1 through 7. And I take these individuals in Matthew 27 to be in that same line of individuals who enjoyed a resurrection of sorts when Jesus was on earth to prove his power. They were raised after Jesus rose from the dead and they went into the city to talk to folks. I believe Matthew 27 is God's last ditch effort to say to Jewish people, he really is Christ. You know, these individuals, you know, these people, they died, they rose from the dead and they're ever about you and in your presence. This resurrection that they experienced is ultimately pointing to the final resurrection that we all hope to enjoy. Now, some people have questions about these folks and they say, "Okay, when they were raised from the dead after that, what happened to them? Option number one. They were taken up to heaven immediately in some miraculous event. Or option number two, they lived a natural physical life and died again and were reburied. I believe option number two fits best. So far as we can tell, they don't have their final resurrected and glorified bodies. Philippians 3.21, 1 Corinthians 15.35 through 58. And so like Lazarus before them, Like Jairus's daughter, like the widow's son at Nain and even those individuals that were raised in the Old Testament by Elijah and Elisha. I believe these individuals met their earthly demise. They were buried again. And they, like everyone else who has passed on, wait for the final trumpet to sound, the final resurrection and for the ultimate new bodies that will enjoy. But their resurrections were pointing to Jesus's own resurrection. And Romans one and verse four says he was raised with power according to the spirit of holiness to be testified as the son of God. There was also one more point added onto this question. Why don't we talk about this account more? Well, probably because it's so challenging and confusing, but also because of the fact that we probably just should. We should add this right in that list with Lazarus. We should add it in the list with Jairus's daughter, the widow's son at Nain. It's just another miraculous manifestation of God's power over death and over the grave. Their resurrection is crowded and surrounded by Jesus's own resurrection. So I would argue sometimes they get lost in the shuffle. Also, Matthew is the only one that mentions it. But it's a miracle done by God to prove his power and to show that what Jesus said was actually true. Here is number. I believe this is number four. Why did God create humans to begin with? And there's again on some of these questions, there's more that was written down, but we shorten it for the slide. The question is, why did God create humans to begin with? Was he lonely? And if he was, then wouldn't angels have sufficed? You know, the Bible tells us Genesis chapter one, that God created everything and it was good and on the sixth day after god created everything genesis 131 says behold it was very good now the bible doesn't give any sort of defense for God's creation or even explanation. The Bible just opens initially by telling us that he did create, that God created everything that we see. And on the sixth day, God did something special. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, made he them, male and female created he them. And then he gave dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the creeping thing and everything that creeps on the earth. That's what we have in Genesis chapter one. God breathed breath into our nostrils and man became a living soul. Genesis two and verse seven. But it doesn't tell us why. So did God create humanity because he was lonely? Genesis one says he created. But the rest of the Bible fills in the picture. And here it's important for you and for me to see God as he's described in Scripture. And by that, I mean the Trinity or the triune nature of God. We sometimes think of God. And while we know that there is father, son, Holy Spirit, we sort of think in a singular mode. But what Jesus says right before he dies is instructive here in John 17 and verse five, Jesus is praying. And you remember what he says? Jesus said, father, let them enjoy the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. Before there ever was creation, there was fellowship, there was companionship, there was partnership between father, son and Holy Spirit. So did God create individuals because he was lonely? No, God always knew creation. God always knew companionship. God always knew fellowship. God always knew company. And so God created humanity so we might enjoy what he enjoys. God knew that, you know what, this is fun to exist and we should share this with humanity because God is love. First John four and verse eight, the Bible says that God created us. Why? For his own glory. Isaiah 43 and verse 7 and Revelation 4 and verse 11 says that God created humanity for his own glory so that we might enjoy fellowship and happiness and love and all of those things. God says this is awesome. And in the most selfless act in history, God says, I want to invite you in to enjoy it, too. Let's create humanity, but let's not just create them. Let's make them in our image. Know you not that the Lord, he's God, is he that made us and not we ourselves. We're the sheep of his hand, the people of his pasture. Psalm 100 and verse three. He made us in his own image by his own choice and volition, not because he didn't have any other options, but because he loved us so much. Genesis chapter five and verse one. You've done this before. You've invited people into your joy without them asking. Somebody says, I didn't ask to be here. Well, you've done this before in a smaller way, on a smaller scale. You like some food? You like a show, some ice cream, a good book. People don't ask you. You just invite them into the joy. And what you're saying in that moment is this. This is so good and so awesome that if you don't get some of this, you're missing out and you want them to partake. God says in creating humanity, oh, you don't know how awesome it is to exist, to reason, to think, to know love and happiness. You are missing out. And so God creates us. We're not the first people to wonder about this. David did in Psalm eight and verse four. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care about him, you made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. And David ends on a note of praise. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Psalm eight and verse nine. And that's where we should end. God wasn't lonely. God created because God is loving. He can't help it, but just shower us down with his love. And so he created humanity in his own image to enjoy fellowship with him. Because he wanted us to know what it was like to really, truly exist. And when we sinned and violated his will and messed things up, God said, don't worry. I created you to live. I've never known death, but I'll step in your shoes and die. And then we can do it all over again. And then you can live with me forever. Here's the next one. Did God intend for us to live in the Garden of Eden forever? Or did God always plan for humanity to sin so that he could send Jesus? That's the question. Genesis one tells us that God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden. But Genesis one twenty eight tells us something a little bit more that God's plan was for Adam and Eve to fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply to replenish the earth and subdue it. Now, they never got to that point because of Genesis chapter three and their sin. But we don't know really how far that expansion project would have gone. It wasn't God's desire for them to merely stay located in this small garden. They would have conquered the whole world. We don't know how that would have gone or how far that would have gone had they not sinned, but that's what happened. God's plan initially was for Adam and Eve and humanity to live in the garden, to glorify him, to fill the earth and to do it. But they failed. But God foreknew that. And so the Bible says in several places, would you write these passages down to be helpful to go back and study these? The tree in Genesis three and Adam and Eve's disobedience did not catch God off guard. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, it says God promised eternal life before the world began. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, it says that God promised salvation before humans existed or before the world began. Ephesians 1, 4, he says we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So before God created the world, he knew that humanity would eventually sin. And he would send Jesus to die for our sins. But here's the thing. God can know that without causing it. God can foreknow without foreordaining. God didn't cause it. God just knew it was going to happen. And God had the provision set in place for when we messed up to fix the problem. Somebody says that doesn't sound right. If God created the world and God knew that we were going to sin and he already had this plan, surely that mean God caused it. No, it doesn't. God can foreknow without violating our free will and foreordaining. But love demands that people have a choice. And so God made us free will beings. And Adam and Eve exercised their free will as God knew they would. And when they did, God started heading toward Calvary. Now, this idea of foreknowing without foreordaining, we've seen this in life on a smaller scale with humans. If you just think about it from a human perspective, it helps you to see, oh, surely God can do that without violating our free will. Schools do this. They'll have summer school built into the calendar before school ever begins. Nobody's gotten in any grades. But why do they have summer school built in? They foreknow that somebody somewhere is not going to do what they should or as they should. And they've already got the provision set in place. Now, they don't cause it. They don't make anybody fail or need to repeat a class. But in case you mess up, the provisions are already in place without ever violating anybody's free will or causing anybody to do such things. They say when you need it, it'll be here. If humans can do it, how much more can God? How much more can he look down the corridors of time and say, I know human beings, they're frail, they're weak. They will sin. And when they do, I'll have a remedy ready. I suppose a better question would be this. If God knew how much it was going to cost him. To redeem people that he made, humanity that was spit in his face, used their energy and faculties to deny his very existence. Why would he ever create? That's the question. And what the Bible says is it's because God loves us. When you read in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, that the love of God cannot be comprehended, the Bible is not exaggerating. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways past finding out. Why did he do it when he knew I would fail him? The only answer to that question Is because he loved us so. Here's the next one. Why did God rest on the seventh day? And does this rest suggest weakness or limits on God's part? Turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. After the sixth day of creation... With Adam and Eve, the Bible says the heavens and the earth were finished and these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then there are two different terms in Genesis chapter two. The first term is God finished all of the works of the heavens and the earth. And then the second phrase is and God rested from his creation. That second word, that idea of God resting, it appears several places in the Old Testament It's Shabbat. It means really to stop or to cease. You see it in Ruth chapter two and verse seven. After she had been working in Boaz's field all day, the Bible says that she went apart for a little while and she stopped working. When you read in Genesis 2 and verse 2 that God rests from creation, it doesn't mean that God was exhausted. What this word means is God stopped creating. God was in a process of creating for six days, and when he was done creating, he just stopped doing it. It says nothing about God being fatigued or God being exhausted. Isaiah 40 and verse 28 says, have you not heard? Do you not know that the Lord God, the everlasting God, the creators of the ends of the earth doesn't faint or grow weary? God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get sleepy. God doesn't get exhausted. This just means that God stopped working in a specific way. He stopped creating. There were no more days of creation after this one, but God continued to work and he works to the present moment. In John 5, they accused Jesus of working on the Sabbath. And in John 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, I am working right now. And so is my father. God wasn't done working. Genesis 2 and verse 2, when it says God took a rest on the seventh day, it means God stopped creating. And so you could draw a box around that word if you wanted to, where it says God rested. And you could just put he stopped. He ceased his creation because that's all Moses is saying. That word means to cease an activity. And that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 2. God isn't fatigued or tired. God is just done with his creation and he's satisfied with his work. After a good day's work, we might come home some, t- some days and some days we're tired. But on other occasions, we've just done all we can. After you've cleaned the house and there's nothing left to do, you just stop. You're done. And God was satisfied with what he had done. And so he ceased to create. Next. Oh, yeah. So this must be number seven. There's one more after this. Why can't men go watch their daughters at last to leaders? That's a good question. Here's the answer. A few weeks ago. Well, the last time we had questions and answers, Neil dealt extensively with male leadership from First Timothy, chapter two, 11 through 15, and even perceived leadership in different contexts and where men should be taking the lead. You remember First Timothy two and verse eight, which says, I want men to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. In this last to leaders context was taking place in these various rooms is individuals either actually leading in worship or training and being prepared to do so. And so as these young girls are leading in worship or preparing to do so in contexts like ladies days and ladies retreats, it would be a violation of first Timothy two if they're leading in worship to lead men, even their fathers in worship. And if somebody says, well, it's not, they're merely practicing. It would be an inconsistent practice to introduce something. That we would later have to remedy and change as they grew up. And so what last two leaders is trying to do in my judgment is to say, let's not condition ourselves for something that we're going to later have to backtrack and recant because little girls grow up to be grown women and women are to be under subjection of men in the public worship assembly. In those settings, when she's reading scripture and leading singing, she is leading that room, for lack of better words. And her father or any male can't come in and be under her subjection or under her authority. And so in keeping with first Timothy, chapter two, 11 through 15 and other passages that talk about not letting our good be evil spoken of. It's wise for the groups to be separate and biblical for men to lead in worship. And when women are doing biblical things, teaching and preaching and song leading and those sorts of things to do it in a context when there are only other women present. And I believe this is the last question tonight. Number eight. Explain Matthew 18, 18 through 20. And if you would turn your Bible here for the last question. And this question went on to talk about in Matthew 18, 18 through 20. And I'm paraphrasing. But basically, does this give an individual the opportunity or the right to worship from home on their own? You remember in Matthew 18 and verse 15 that the context is really about an individual who has an odd against a brother And Jesus says, if you have an issue with your brother, go tell you your fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he won't take one or two with you, so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And after that, in verse 17, if he won't hear the two or three, tell it to the church. And if he won't hear the church, then let him be to you as a heathen and a publican or a tax collector. And then Jesus makes this statement beginning in verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 19, if any of you agree in touching anything on earth, two of you, he says, you'll be honored or you'll be heard by my father, which is in heaven, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. Now, this verse has often been used to suggest that an individual can have a sort of private worship setting. There are several problems with this. Number one, this passage has nothing to do with worship and everything to do with church discipline. What Jesus is saying here is this. If someone has an issue with me and they come to me and I won't repent or fix it or solve the issue, they bring two or three more. And I won't hear them. You bring Hiram before the whole church. And if he won't hear the whole church, then he's disciplined and you treat him as a heathen or a publican or a tax collector, like an unbeliever, have nothing to do with him until he's brought to repentance. And then Jesus says, by the way, when you do that, when you discipline Hiram because he just won't repent, wherever two or three of you are gathered together and you agree that he is deserving of discipline, I'm with you and I affirm. Now, hold your hand in Matthew 18, and you might want to write this in the margin. Go to Deuteronomy 19, because this is the background for Jesus's response. It's a court proceeding. And Deuteronomy 19 and in verse 15, this was a practice in Old Testament Israel. And you could understand why. If you were going to kill a person because it was a capital offense. And someone said this person was guilty of X. You will want more than one witness. And so in Deuteronomy 19:15, Moses writes and says no one will be punished based on the testimony of one person. You need at least two or three individuals to verify the conviction and then you can administer justice. That principle in Deuteronomy 19, 15, and it's in Matthew 18 and in verse 16. And it is ultimately the background for what Jesus says in verse 20. Jesus says, as you discipline Hiram, quote unquote, In this court proceeding in the church, because he just will not have it any other way. If you need two or three witnesses and the church is gathered in agreement, Jesus says, I'm your second and third witness. I'll be there with you. Far from saying that individuals don't have to assemble because Jesus is okay with it. And he affirms them. This passage actually teaches that Jesus is here to judge individuals that are rebellious against the church. It's interesting that people take this passage and say, surely I can meet on my own when in verse 17 of Matthew 18. Jesus describes the whole church. He says, tell it to the church. Everybody gathered. This isn't a passage for private worship on my own away from the gathered assembly. A church may be small in number. There is no set number that has to be meet, met before an individual or a group of individuals can be considered a congregation of God's people. But we don't have God's permission to be isolated away from the people of God to meet in our hotel room or to do whatever we want to set aside. And then quote Matthew eighteen twenty and say, "Well, wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus promises to be in their midst." In this passage, you don't want Jesus gathered in your midst. This passage is about individuals who've rebelled against God and who the gavel of judgment is coming down on them. When people say that about their own private setting. They indict themselves. Oh, he's gathered, but not in approval, ultimately in condemnation. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, instruction, and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And these questions and answers, what we want to do is take the questions and say, does the Bible say anything about that? And where there's room for disagreement and judgment, we want to affirm that. But where God has spoken, we want to loudly echo what he has said. Hopefully tonight, something's been said to cause us to think. Maybe more questions have been brought up, and you can introduce those next time, and I know Neil just can't wait to answer all of those questions. But maybe tonight, someone has the most important question in the world on their heart, and that is, what must I do to be saved? And the simple answer is, Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, turn from sin, confessing him as Lord with faith and conviction that he is who he claimed to be and allow your body to be immersed in water and you will rise to walk in newness of life. And when the trumpet sounds just like those people in Matthew 28, your grave will open, your body will be glorious and you will always be with the Lord. David's going to lead us in a song. If you need the prayers of the church, if we can help you in any way, we'd be happy to do so. Come now together. We stand and as we sing.